Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to our seventh edition of the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Today we welcome Yante Demos, who is a founding member and co-artistic director of One Year Lease. Yante's directing work has been described as dynamic, theatrical witchcraft, riveting theater, playfully poisonous, and a gleaming portrait of her collective contemporary existence, as well as a celebration of theatrical energy. Interested in the intersection of theater and education, Yante has served as a guest director and teacher at Vassar College, Harvard University, and Pace, as well as working on One Year Lease's uh, annual apprentice program. Yante is also vice president of Selby Artist, Artist Management. Uh, she divides her time between Greece and New York City. We welcome her today and uh, we'll be discussing her journey in theater, her experiences in realistic theater, and her journey towards avant garde or progressive theater or stylized theater, her perspectives on feminism and the journey building a business of one year lease and producing works in New York City. Thank you. Excited to start this conversation. Okay, so we're here with Yante Demos, uh, co-founder of the uh, One Year Lease Theater Program, Theater Company. And uh, first let's begin by just talking a little bit about you as a person, where you, where you were born and where you grew up. Okay, well thank you for having me. Um, my name is Yante Demos. I grew up in Greece. I was born and raised in Greece and I came here to the U.S. when um, I was 18. Um, and since then I've lived in New York, um, and I split my time now between Greece and New York. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, what was it like living in Greece uh, as, opposed to, as opposed to America? Is there any things that, any things that you can call attention to, that the culture, or things that, like, and also how you've drawn from the, um, your culture to uh, inform your work? Sure. I mean, I, I think once you live in two places consistently, you stop mm-hmm. noticing the big differences. Um, yeah. They just become like part of, you know, part of everyday life. So, um, I, you know, it's, it's really hard to <laughs> just yeah. point out vast differences yeah, between the U.S. Yeah. and Greece. Um, they're just, they're kind of two different worlds in so many ways, um, but they're both very westernized and very, yeah. you know, very much coming from the same kind of, um, background in terms of culture and in terms of theater. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, people say that Greece is the birthplace of theater, um, and uh, that definitely had an impact. Um, the, the kind of exposure to ancient Greek theater and to theater in Greece definitely had an impact on me um, growing up and then deciding to go into directing. Um, so I, I like to see kind of the two kind of influence each other. Um, and in New York, when I was working here, I got very influenced by avant-garde theater, a lot more, a lot of more modern um, approaches, um, and it has been fun to kind of ping-pong the two ideas back and forth. So if we get, before we get to the avant-garde theater and the mm-hmm. progressive theater you're doing now, but growing up, what kind of things were you exposed to, or what kind of uh, theater were you exposed to? How did theater start to integrate itself into your life prior to coming here? Or did you go to shows, or what were your parents doing, or...? Definitely went to shows. I mean, my mm-hmm. father's a photographer. Um, my mother is, has always been very interested in museums, theater, anything that's cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was definitely exposed from a very young age to theater. Um, and I, I would say all sorts, as whatever was available. I think, you know, Greece in the 80s and 90s um, definitely 
I don't want to use the word progressive because every place is different and yeah. what does that mean at the end of the day? Yeah. Um, but the theater that was happening was, um, was rooted in, um, I, I guess, in older ideas um, of, of what theater is and what it should do. Um, and older you mean like um, the classical or how do you mean older? Some of it is classical. Uh -huh. um, some of it in terms of its approach is um, very focused on storylines, very focused on, um, you know, today in Greece there's tons of theater. Athens actually has more theaters um, per in the percentage of its population than any other major city uh -huh. in the world. Um, and so there's a lot of, the, there's a huge theater going audience there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say it, a lot of the work verges more on um, very classical structures and um, even when it's dealing with contemporary issues um, and or it kind of feels a little bit soap opera-y. Yeah. Um, there's definitely work that has diverged from that and is um, exploring other forms, uh, but it's not, it's mm -hmm. not the status quo. So just to clarify again, like uh, so classical meaning like going into Greek, uh, ancient Greek um, text or modern text or not always vary? ancient Greek text. No, no the, yeah. I think when I when I'm talking about classical, I'm talking more about structure than structure, I'm talking okay, about yeah. storyline. Oh yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. Something like realistic theater, kind yeah. of like what we see in uh, the narrative driven and mm -hmm. such. So, mm -hmm. And then yeah. now you're saying though, uh, now it's starting to get into more avant-garde theater. Would you say in Greece today? I think just because of the um, amount of theater that's happening, mm. we start seeing more and more of it. Yeah. Good, good. And definitely because of uh, the political situation and the cultural situation, responding to the political situation there, um, theater has become bolder and and is trying different things in, in Athens right now. Excellent, excellent. So. Um, when, when, now, when you came to America for college, uh, were you in the tradition? Were you in the tradition of realistic theater, narrative-driven theater, or did you already start to have a passion for um, gone theater? Do you remember? Uh, I think when yeah. I arrived here, I was I was eighteen years old. I don't uh -huh. I don't think I knew much about no no. It was definitely narrative-driven. Yeah, definitely classical structures. Oh, yeah. good, good. Because I remember I had seen a play of yours, uh, Antigone, which is a big, mm -hmm. uh, bigger memory memory of mine when I went to Vassar for a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, already you'd started establishing kind of some this kind of for those who haven't seen it, uh, uh, basically it was it, it uses non, you know, yeah. non-traditional techniques uh, right. and, and very kind of avant-garde in some ways. So I think right. it was probably in your first years you started working mm -hmm. in that. Yeah. And then uh, it seems like your trajectory since then has been towards more progressive avant-garde theater. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how did you start to establish such a uh, aesthetic? And what were your influences? Or is there any specific uh, things that you look towards to uh, in college? I guess you uh, majored in drama, mm -hmm. and uh, and was there any particular uh, traditions or schools that you kind of felt were along the lines of? Uh, or is yeah, it, you know? I guess you always have different influences. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly um, the work of City Company and mm -hmm. and Bogart was a big influence on um, me as I was studying. Mm -hmm. um, the, the work of Bratowski and a lot of the Polish directors were big mm -hmm. influences. Um, and, and I think I was, I was very curious um, to, to kind of take little bits and pieces from everything I was, I was learning um, mm -hmm. without trying to, um, to emulate one, yeah. one aesthetic. Finding your own voice. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, very yeah. important yeah. to be able to uh, understand what 
people are doing, but also to find your own niche and your own voice of, mm-hmm. of how you're exploring it. So uh, once you finished, uh, graduated from Rasser and you, uh, I guess that was the year that you established One Year Lease, or how, what can you tell us through the process of establishing yeah. One Year Lease and how that, what went into that? Yeah, yeah sure. One Year Lease it got founded right out of Vassar College. We were a bunch of students looking for a way to do theater in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that in order to raise money to put on productions, we needed an actual corporation and um, we needed somewhere that we could ask people to give money to. Mm-hmm. So we formed a company as um, a couple of us. It was four or five of us at the time who had just graduated. Um, and... And since then, it has take on, taken on many iterations. The actual structure of the incorporation stayed throughout it, um, but people came and went, and um, and it kind of naturally evolved into what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we were very careful to, while pushing it forward, never to kind of um, say it has to be this, um, yeah. and really kind of discovering where we were. It's very open to the organic process, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, mm-hmm. good. So, what were the first? What was the first? If you can take us, to, you know, I know there's probably many, but if you can take us through some of the milestone productions uh, earlier on, how how that kind of helped establish the organic process that you were describing, and how the work um, informed that process. Yeah, I would say it wasn't really until 2008 when it was a production of The Bold Soprano that we did that mm-hmm. really kind of. Um, began to inform a process for us as the company we have become today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was that was the first production we also, we had just formed as an ensemble. So when we formed the company in 2001, it was more a production company. Um, it definitely had a group of resident artists, um, but it was not an ensemble company whose um, actors were working together in a very consistent way. That happened in 2008, so it was mm-hmm. really the first production that came out of that ensemble that really began to define us aesthetically in terms of the sort of work we were we were going for and we've kept going for since then. Good, good. So Paul Soprano's Inesco, right? Or mm-hmm. Inesco, and it's, uh, I can tell a little bit about that production, how mm-hmm. uh, you used a text that was written I guess late 20th century or mid 20th century or something like that. I mean, somewhere, somewhere, but it's not an older text, it's like kind of somewhat of a modern text. And uh, how your your interpretation process, since that was like the milestone that established where you're going now, mm-hmm. um, you know, can you tell a little bit how I you interpret it? Yeah. I think I think the important thing to remember about Bold Soprano is how much fun it is. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a absurdist text, um, and in one of the approaches we did with it um, was set up. Uh, I don't remember how many sets of rules that were constantly fluctuating, constantly changing. Giving, giving the, the the production kind of this shape that it had to exist within, um, and so creating this physical vocabulary that was coexisting alongside the text, um, and it's something that we've continued to explore. In that we're a very physical company, we work with a choreographer. Um, all of our actors are kind of highly trained in movement, um, mm-hmm. and if they're not, they become as they yeah. work with us. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, so we're constantly interested of the of the meeting of um, a physical vocabulary with a t- the vocabulary that the text already has, and how those two things kind of rise to meet each other. Good, um, good. And we first began discovering that with Waltz Bonner. Oh, good, good. So what was the next milestone after Waltz Do you remember uh, uh, kind of what was a uh, was a production that 
Um, I saw uh, Pool No Water right. in, I believe, 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a few years after. So that uh, was a big yeah, one. Yeah, that was, that was one, definitely yeah. a big one. Yeah. Um, and again, it was a further exploration of this idea of the physical meeting, the text, and um, this idea of we don't like to call it necessarily dance, but it is dance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of working with our actors, with, with dance, with different movement. They were working with boxing at the time um, and infusing kind of the world of the play with this very heightened physicality. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah and that play, um, I remember what struck me about it was that, uh, you know, as you're saying, the contrast between kind of narrative driven versus mm -hmm. organically, um, you know, more uh, movement driven or more aesthetic, aesthetic uh, uh, right. That I definitely struck me about that production that the actors are almost like it's. I guess you can consider it a stylized production, or it's yeah. kind of stylized because the idea that it's not imitating real life, it's more like imitating the emotional, or it's more like uh, emulating or yeah. achieving kind of emotional landscapes, yeah. would you say? Yeah. So, let's say it's kind of like poetry, it's kind of like a poet, poetics mm -hmm. of theater, mm -hmm. and getting into the. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you say getting into the uh, kind of the. Um, like as, as opposed to, you know, telling this happened, that happened, it gets into more emotions of the characters, would you say? Or how would you phrase it? Or, uh, what, what, yeah, what the way happened? we kind of described it for ourselves when we were working on that production is <clears> that the movement was kind of stepping in in the same way that songs kind of appear in musicals when there's, there's no other way to express something, mm -hmm. is that the movement was really stepping in when the words kind of fell short when yeah. words would fall short, short for whatever the emotional yeah, vocabulary of that yeah. moment was. Yeah. Um, and the other the other thing that was a big stepping stone for us with Pool No Water um, artistically um, was that that text is written as, um, in, as one long paragraph with no delineations between characters. Um, so we started really exploring this kind of nature of a chorus and um, this nature of language as as a of a choral nature of a group, um, and and how that could could enhance the the storytelling as well. Sure. So let's go a little bit more into the the pull no order. It was written. Who who wrote it and how did you collaborate with? Uh, yeah. Mark Ravenhill wrote it, um, mm -hmm. and and it was it was basically we paid rights to to mm -hmm. perform it. Um, mm -hmm. So it wasn't that one was not a collaboration with okay. the playwright in that sense. Yeah. Um, he was aware of the production, um, but that that was pretty much good. Yeah, yeah. So did he approach you, or how was that organic process? No, we we had read the We'd script. Read the script? And okay, we good. had been interested in it. Yeah. Oh, good, good. So um, after that, I think I remember there's a couple other productions before before we get to balls, but mm -hmm. which is the current productions coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, well, at the air time, it'll be January fourth, but it'll come out I think January sixteenth. Mm -hmm. So before we get to that, just quickly go over. Um, so what was the build-up towards after Pulnor? You had, I think you had one more production or two more productions after But Pulnor? a couple. Um, yeah. There was a production called Stockholm by Brian e. Lavery, who was mm -hmm. one of the co-writers of Balls as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a New York premiere, New York City premiere, um, that we did at 59 East 59th again. Um, and then there was a production of, um, by a Scottish playwright called um, What We Know, um, that we did in a smaller production um, at Teatro Circulo's space on East 4th Street. Um, and then most recently we did um, a production, another commission that um, by Kevin Armento, who is the second co-writer of Balls, 
or the other co-writer of Balls. Um, and uh, that played in New York. It got very, very great reviews and a great reception and then um, moved to Edinburgh for a run there. Are you talking about Please Excuse My Dear Aunt Sally? Excuse yeah. Yeah. Pam yeah. Das, Please yeah. Excuse My Dear Aunt Sally. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us a little bit about that production and then and how kind of what went into that. You talked, you said it was commissioned, but um, a little bit, can you inform a little bit of the storyline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that was a commission. Um, we were interested in commissioning a, a, a piece that Kevin was going to write and mm-hmm. that the subject matter was infidelity. Yeah. Um, and we started from there as a company. We did a week-long workshop um, where we as a company with about six or six actors, a movement director, and myself and Nick, the two directors of the mm-hmm. company, um, worked on the subject of infidelity and like, what did it look like? What did it feel like? Um, with Kevin in the room, and from that workshop, um, the kind of just the agreement between us and Kevin was that then he would go away and write um, yeah. for however long it took, and um, and then he sent us a script which was. I would say it didn't change very much. It definitely went through some redrafting, but it didn't yeah. didn't significantly change um, from the first draft, really, of when it came mm. out of him to to when it went on to when it went up in New York. Um, and it was written again as one long sentence, mm-hmm. um, and it's the story of a young boy, uh, probably fourteen year old, uh, maybe younger who falls in love with his teacher, his math teacher, mm-hmm. and has an affair with her. And um, and it is all told through the perspective of his cell phone, um, who witnesses this entire event. So the cell phone is like a character, or how do you, can you explain a little so bit The more? cell phone is the voice of the, voice, the okay. narrator oh, of the okay. show. Yeah. Um, and the, the ne- basically we had five actors in the piece and one live musician um, that played the role of the cell phone, but also would jump into any other character that the cell phone was narrating about. Interesting, interesting. Very nice, very nice. So, um, yeah, I read, I read a little reviews that was very well reviewed, and mm-hmm. I think it's very nice to be able to um, kind of push the boundaries of your audience, be able to explore topics that some people may consider taboo, but also just explore in a, in a way uh, that is uh, accessible, you know? Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. So now, um, so that was, what year was that? What was your response? That was 2015, and then oh, it great. went to Edinburgh in 2016. Oh, so then we're already starting the momentum for Balls, because it, it Yeah, we were so, already in... Yeah, yeah, already yeah, in, yeah. Or, or, so, Balls had already been commissioned, I think, mm-hmm. when Pendus was going to Edinburgh. Good, good. So let's talk a little bit about that, and how you um, started the process for that, mm-hmm. and collaborations mm-hmm. and such, yeah. The idea came to us from Kevin, who said, hey, this worked really well with Pendus. Do you, are you guys interested in another, in another commission? We said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, there's this tennis game that um, I've been interested in, and I think you guys are the right company to do a production about it. Um, and uh, it turned out it was, a 19, it was this famous tennis match of 1973 between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, um, in which... Bobby Riggs, who was 55 at the time, a retired professional tennis player, but who is also full of bravado and full of, um, I guess you call him machismo, I don't know, yeah. um, believed that he could beat any female tennis player in the world at the time um, because he was on this kind of crusade of men are you know just better than women. Uh-huh. Um, and 
so he had ch- he had played Margaret Court, who was number one in the world at that time, um, and she lost very badly in what came to be called the Mother's Day Massacre. Um, and when Billie Jean saw that match played out, she and he had first gone to Billie Jean because she was much more of a personality. Um, and she had said no. She said, I have nothing to prove. I don't need to play you. But once Margaret Court, who was number one, lost to Bobby Riggs in such a pretty much a dismal way, um, Billy said, I have to play him now. Yeah. I have to, you know, I have to make this up for all women in the world, essentially. Yeah. And she did in this, um, on September 22nd, I want to say, I might be wrong about that, 1973. Oh. Um, in the Houston Astrodome, um, and it, the Houston Astrodome, they played to 30,000 people, um, and then 90 million people worldwide watched the match, and at the time, that was, it, it, the number of people that watched in the U.S. that day was more than watched the Super Bowl. Oh, wow. Um, so it was yeah. an enormous event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were interested in the kind of spectacle idea of this event. Yeah. Uh, and while we were in workshop with Kevin for the first week, we were doing a similar kind of process to when we had done PEMDAS. Um, we we went, approached him, our dramaturg came up with the idea of, hey, wouldn't this be cool if this was written by a man and a woman? Mm. Um, and we asked Kevin if that would be something that interested him. And he immediately said yes and um, called Bryony, who we had suggested. Um, on the spot, and and Bryony was was interested because we had been trying to find a commission to work on with her as well, mm-hmm. um, and they knew each other because they had spent time with us in Greece in resi- in our residency program, um, so that's kind of how the idea was born. Mm-hmm. And then they, when they came together that summer with us in Greece, um, and we still didn't none of us knew what we were doing. Um, or what the production really was other than it was inspired by this match, but what were we going to do with it? Um, they came to us one afternoon over lunch, and um, Kevin and Bryony asked Natalie, Nick, and I, they said, you know, can you restage the match shot for shot? Mm, and without missing a beat, we said, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not even thinking of, like, how we were going to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we went into the rehearsal room the next day, and um, we started to figure that out, and I think we got... I think we got something crazy like uh, 20 seconds in four hours. And so we kind mm-hmm. of were like, oh, we're in for it. You know, yeah. this is a 90-minute match. Yeah. Um, but it was like, really exciting. Good, so, good. Yeah, the entire match is staged shot for shot on, on, on stage. So it seemed like there's suddenly a surge, resurgence of interest in this topic since the movie Battle of Sexes came, I mm-hmm. think, like last year. Was that fortunate or unfortunate? I don't know how you'd... Uh, it was fortunate, but it was not planned. Yeah. Um, so we were aware of it, mm-hmm. um, and we were aware of it pretty early on. But um, we kind of said, "Well, that's wonderful. What, yeah. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's yeah. move forward." Okay. Good. Good. So um, I think a lot, maybe helped, a lot more people actually. did start googling this uh, match, yeah. and then of course your production would come up. So mm-hmm. I hope that yeah. it's really great. So. Um, well, the movie premiered in Houston, and we premiered in Houston oh, wow. right around the same time, uh-huh. about two weeks apart. So yeah. that, that kind of buzz helped yeah. one help the other, I'd like to think. Yeah. Although I don't think the movie needed much help. <laughs> but uh, you also, I, I, I looked at the review, um, and I see that you made some bold choices in regards to, um, the production company made some bold choices in regards to how it's staged. And you already mentioned about recreating the match, but um, 
also about the, the use of uh, tennis balls and, and miming. And if you talk a little bit about kind of the approach to staging it, also I think that it wasn't, it's not, just, for those that are listening, it's not just the match, but also there's some other um, storylines story and, and not, you know, it's, it's, so it's not just that you're watching a tennis match, but rather that you're getting a sense of the whole uh, era and, and, uh, and the narrative of yeah. gender uh, equality, feminism, mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about that yeah I, I see the match kind of as the spine of the piece so the 90 minutes of the show is is the, are the 90 minutes of the match but within that we bounce actually we we, we bounce forward in yeah. many ways we go from 1973 to today yeah um and look at basically ask the question of how far have we come mm. um so the the timeline although you begin with 1973 you quickly start jumping forward um, while keeping the spine of the match going on. Um, so in so many ways, we describe it as a meditation on questions of gender um, rather than, uh, you know, you kn- the, the match, I think the other way we've come to understand it in some ways is the kind of enduring race of feminism and, and the endurance of that battle um, is is represented in the kind of, watching this battle of endurance of two mm. performers having to replay an entire match um, shot for shot. So yeah. so it's more an allegory rather than, um, you know, even even though watching the match is obviously fascinating, we also don't have any balls in play. So mm-hmm. though they're recreating each shot, you never see a ball go back and forth. You, mm. There is a live Foley sound artist who works with the performers who... Technically, is the ball. Yeah. So you, you hear yeah. the ball, but you never see it. Good, good. So um, now this, the production is going to premiere in New York at uh, 59th Street mm-hmm. Theater, East 59th Street Theater. Um, and uh, the tickets will go on sale, uh, or have they already gone they on sale? They are on sale. They are on sale, yeah. okay. Yeah. Where, can they, where can people uh, go to, or just Google? Um, on just, the uh, 59, East 59. Um, website it's oh, good. 59e59.org I believe uh-huh, it yeah. might be dot com just, yeah. um, but it's, uh, it's right up there yeah. good good so just to circle back you mentioned about the um, fellowship program I believe you have an apprenticeship program mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about how your education arm of one year lease and how you sure. work with different colleges I guess to um, train them in, in theater yeah yeah we run um, since 2007 we've been running an educational program in northern Greece, where um, every year we have 20 students from across the United States um, and colleges across the United States um, uh, join us for a month in northern Greece, and um, they, by the end of the month, they perform uh, about an hour-long piece as an ensemble in Greek in village in squares and villages in the area. Um, we bring several guest artists to work with the students as well as our company. Um, and guest artists ha- in the past couple of years have been um, some examples are Leon from the City Company, um, Gabrielle Cody from Vassar College. Um, we've had, uh, sorry, Shira Milikowski who works with um, ART in Boston, mm-hmm. um, Kim Wielt who's a uh, director, and then we work with uh, members of the National Theatre of Greece who also come up and work on some choral work. 
Uh, so it's really, a, and last year we had these wonderful, um, this wonderful UK company called Rash Dash that joined us for a week. Um, so it's really kind of a mix of perspectives and um, aesthetics and mm-hmm. approaches in theater um, with the idea that the students kind of leave having asked the question of why are they doing this right now and where are they um, as artists um, and maybe not receiving any concrete answers but starting to ask why is this important to them. So this open to college students and um, uh, how can they find out more about that if the college students listening and they can just go to the Wendy Lee Theater Company uh, website and And there's an application process. Mm-hmm. Is there an application process and what is involved in selecting? There is an application process uh-huh. um, and it is, uh, we do it on rolling admissions. Um, it, the applications are open right now. Um, and it's a pretty simple application and then um, we ask for more information depending on what we glean from the application and mm-hmm. what more we want to know. Um, and it, it is competitive because we only have 20 spots. Mm-hmm. Um, it unfortunately is also relatively expensive, not more expensive than any of programs um, like it, but unfortunately these programs cost something. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have two scholarships. We're lucky enough to be able to offer two scholarships um, based on financial need and um, uh Diversity. I think. I think those are the two kind of angles that we use that we approach the scholarships from. Good. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. So um, and just also about when you um, your processing just a return to the when you lease um, when you when you're processing selecting collaborations and such uh, is also is there how do you farm these uh, collaborations mm-hmm. and kind of what is there any if people are listening who want to work with you how would they go about uh, finding out ways or yeah. yeah I think the easiest way is to really just email us from the website uh-huh. um, and let us know if people have a project it's it's often a long process of yeah. um, you know getting to know people and then um, figuring out whether it is a good match um, mm-hmm. in terms of how people approach work um, we are very we're very collaborative. Um, we we want people that kind of want to collaborate in the room with us. We're mm-hmm. less far less interested, although we have been known to to do it. But we're usually less interested in a, a script that's ready and that just mm. people want it to be produced. Oh, okay. Um, we're much more interested in building things from the ground up mm-hmm. um, and collaborating with people to do that. Uh, can you more specific about what kind of what what's kind of the lens that you're looking at or um, what kind of themes or what kind of ideas or, or you know, what is something is, are you open to anything? Or what yeah, kind of, we're, we're, we're quite there, open, but I, yeah. I think as a rule of thumb, we've always been very interested in form and, mm-hmm. and playing with form and how, mm-hmm. um, and, and looking for different, um, different kind of new approaches to the theatrical art form uh, and what I mean by that is it's very very open you know yeah um, but we're, we're curious as to like we're less interested in again a classical narrative yeah um, but much more interested in somebody who wants to kind of create something that is it has a unique structure to it sure sure so what are you uh, uh, what are you looking at now as far as as a viewer or as a 
uh, theater goer? Uh, is anything that's uh, anything that's interesting you or? Oh, lots that's, of yeah. things. I mean, I just saw recently or last weekend. I don't remember. I saw Home at BAM, which um, mm-hmm. Jeff Jeff Sobel, I believe, is how you pronounce his name. Yeah. Um, from Pig Iron did, uh, and I loved that. Um, I think there's a lot of very very interesting things going on in New York right mm-hmm. now. Um, but but every, everything and anything kind yeah, of you know yeah. so just just seeing and yeah seeing what what's interesting yeah. good good so um so let's circle back to uh, and now you as mostly operate as director right or can you talk a little much your role like in other words you're, you're director or artistic director you directed uh, balls uh, I or co-direct, co-directed mm-hmm. balls okay mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about your process in directing or in that specific mm-hmm. piece or in any piece. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it always is. It's always shifting. Um, mm-hmm. But um, my process as a director, I work very, very closely with a woman called Natalie Lamont, who's our movement director. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am always interested in starting a process from really playing with actors and kind of um, exploring every angle and every possibility before we nail anything down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm. I think I'm. I try to remain very, very curious in a rehearsal room, mm-hmm. um, and rarely, while going in every time with a plan, knowing that that is going to be sh- shooken up <laughs> by yeah. actors and allowing for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I, I think I think part of my training has been and continues to be how to enter a rehearsal room and remain completely open to possibilities Mm -hmm. Um, because I think so much of our world we're taught you know to um, that everything occurs like exists in boxes and in structures and um, and that that is our job as artists and I think our job as artists is actually the opposite from that Mm -hmm. it's to keep looking and and to try to create from from whatever we see based on, on where we think we're headed and then allow that to, to be changed. Okay. So if you have any advice for people who are starting their career and, and you know, beginning to investigate theater, uh, what would you say about, uh, your, what would you say, you, what advice would you give to people who are in theater or, or about to start their career in theater uh, as a, you know, I think, I, I think my primary advice these days is, um, Make sure you're getting out and getting inspiration from many different places. Mm-hmm. So that um, go to museums, especially if you're in New York City. Go, go, go see things. Go, you know. I know everything seems to always cost money these days, yeah. but find the things that don't, um, and and get out and be curious about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, whichever way you choose to do that, um, I think often in New York and especially with younger artists, I see. It caught in kind of a, a like, <laughs> just they, they think, okay, well, I go, I do my audition, I get my headshots yeah. done. Um, but I think it takes a lot more than that. It takes mm. a, a vast curiosity and um, an interest past what is actually, ha- what, what is existing in the theater, and then, um, like, basically training yourself to watch the world and, uh, yeah. and see how that inspires you. Exactly. I think that what, what I'm kind of getting from what you're saying is that 
you know, people think of it as a game and that they have to play the game mm -hmm. to the rules that have already been established and excel at those rules so that they're ahead of the pack. What you're kind of seeming to be observing is that uh, integrating in uh, kind of what, what they call outside of the box thinking, but kind of means that integrating in your whole self or integrating in your whole um, perspectives on different cross-disciplinary so you're able to um, integrate that into a vision for theater and you're able to offer, even as an actor, offer something uh, beyond just what's being done. Right. Would you say? Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, have you also done writing or have you uh, worked on, uh, you, you collaborated on yeah. with the, what you've done a little bit of, how, what was your background with, the, um, like what is it, when, you, when the writer approaches you, are you more of an editor or... Would you say, or more like kind of commenting on? I think I'm yeah. a, um, I'm much more of a responder to responder, to, yeah. to what they're yeah. doing, and kind of I I tend to say, okay, that's what you've written. Here's what I can do with it. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, As the director and, is there. and yeah. my co-director Nick is much much better um, often at looking at structure and being able to talk about how he thinks the writing can can shift to to better serve itself while I'm kind of the the person who's like okay well if this is what it is mm -hmm. here's what it looks like good good um, so that's the difference in the balance between the two of us good good so as we wrap up we can talk about a little bit about um, you touched on stuff about feminism and about the journey of building mm -hmm. equality and the the battle against inequality uh, how do you connect that like how's your journey been for like you know has you have you have you dealt with perhaps uh any, is there any uh element of that that you've kind of confronted or you went or talk about or yeah i mean yeah. i think i think as 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 the world is learning yeah. in these days it's it's not something that you you say no i've never experienced of that course, of yeah. course not um and and i think it's part of our reality um i've always felt that um for me that uh, to, I, I don't know how much time I spent battling that, or how much time I spent ignoring it, and mm -hmm. rather and saying no, 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 I, like I, I see opportunity in front of me, yeah, um, and and kind of creating the world for myself that I want to um, exist in as an artist um, mm -hmm. and 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 as a business person and as a producer, yeah. Um, and that has always felt, for me, much more productive than battling something. Yeah. Um, I guess it is its own battle, but I've always kind of just gone forward and done what I want to do. Sure, sure. So in that regard, just to uh, uh, kind of go back to the advice kind of thing. So for women who are just starting into their business or uh, specifically into theater, uh, you know, I know that uh, many times people have told me that they feel like, you know, many women uh, were entering the theater world. Uh, might be feeling a little pressure from that battle, those battles. So if you could talk a little bit, any advice you'd give them, or kind of lessons learned that you had to be able to implement that process that you're saying, and be able to find your own niche and all that, and, and how you were able to achieve that. If you do it more specifically. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I don't know <laughs> yeah. if I want to tell other women yeah. how to do yeah, of course. whatever they no, you know yeah. whatever they, they they find to do. Um, yeah, I think I think for me the solution has always been um, that although I'm very well aware of 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 the battles that I myself mm -hmm. am encountering, um, I 
I don't believe they should be there, and therefore yeah. I kind of function as if they're not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that has worked for me, but um, I you know every situation is different. And, yeah. Um, and I, I wouldn't presume to tell other you know sure, other women sure. how to yeah, of course, encounter of course. it. Yeah. But of course, in the subject matter balls, we were able to bring to light mm-hmm. you know some of these battles and historically and understand how the viewers uh, gain a kind of understanding of the overall. Uh, journey of the feminist movement and feminism and and how one individual story can inform the larger narrative so I think your journey has been very inspirational for everyone but I, I suspect uh, you know it's, it's very inspirational for women as well but um, so now the um, we'll just wrap up and then uh, the the name is the name of the um, uh, series called the truth to power series so basically it's kind of looking at kind of power structures and looking at uh, how our personal lives are informed by uh, that struggle between, um, you know, the personal truth and empowering ourselves and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm kind of making headway in that journey, as well as uh, understanding that these narratives that we have out there uh, may be, um, you know, perceived as restrictive. But as you're saying, I think the lesson from this is that we can kind of make our own space and, and create uh, without fear of being crushed upon, you know, mm-hmm. so that's very mm-hmm. good. So, if you have any closing thoughts, or, uh, I would, I would well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not sure, I think we're yeah. sad a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, thanks so much for this interview. Thank you. I hope, uh, I hope people will go to see balls at, uh, Dynasty Theater. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Episode, if you will, a mini interview with my dad, uh, Subraman Ramanathan. So, why don't we? St- we're going to ask him to talk a little bit about his life growing up and his career in medicine. So, why don't we start off by just asking you, uh, where were you born and uh, where'd you live? I was born in a small village in um, southern India. My parents moved to a town in uh, southern India <clears throat> for a period of two years. My father was a insurance agent and he had to tour a lot. And then we came to a big city of Mumbai, which at that time was called Bombay, when he was about seven years old. Then uh, because Bombay is a big city, the housing was so difficult mm. that uh, we lived in a one-room uh, tenement, so to speak. And, uh, we lived there, uh, I joined in fourth grade in uh, Mumbai and finished uh, my high school and living in the same tenement with uh, my sister and brother, mm-hmm. and my mom and dad. I went to four-year college and then went into a medical school at which time I moved into a, a college hostel. Well, before, what are some of your early memories of growing up in uh, Mumbai? Well, we had, our school was, we had a park uh, right next to our house building. Mm-hmm so to speak. And we played in that uh, park. And then we had to cross the park and go to school. So so everything that we did was in a, a three or four square mile area. We walked everywhere. We had lots of friends. So we didn't have any close um, supervision from our parents. All our friends got together. We would ma- walk a mile or two to the nearest beach or to the nearest town. 
and every evening we would walk and we had lots of games of course what was the game you played that um the earliest i remember were games of little wooden toys uh that we played with our, with our, with our friends and then marbles and then little um, steel wheels that we used to we used to move it around and of course uh, we used to play soccer and mm. we got older yeah so when you grew up um you where did you go to college and uh graduate school yes. high school uh well they said the high the schooling was just very close by 11 years of schooling and then four years of college uh we had to walk about a mile each way and then we used to come home in the evening that was in science and then uh we chose i chose to go to um medical school uh, which is about 7 miles away and there we stayed in the hostel grant medical college in mumbai so after medical college what happened uh after we finished medical college uh many of my friends were applying uh to go to to go to usa i was all for any exam anybody took i was after the same exams i need to take more exams so to speak so i took those exam necessary exam to go to usa and soon i began to apply and i got many applications from detroit new york and newport mm. i chose to go to newport hospital newport rhode island because two of my friends were there so i applied there and i got it they paid for my uh, airplane trip and they gave me what i thought at that time was a handsome salary so i landed here 50 years ago in june of 1967 mm. they gave me room and board right next to the hospital a little house where three of us lived together and the ho- and the hospital was just about 100 feet away and the three of you was the two friends from medical college yes yeah same then we used to work every third day we had to be on call every third day so one day we had to rest one day we we did what we liked and one day we had to work the work was 24 hours yeah so just to um flash forward so now after you worked in you started your career in in New York right or what, how long did that take before you started your career yes yeah. um well after I finished Newport hospital i went to a couple of more hospitals Coney Island hospital in brooklyn and the VA hospital in brooklyn and VA hospital in um, philadelphia that was in cardiology training and then i began to work in a staten island medical group staten island new york it carried about 31 uh, physicians what year is this that was in 1973 we had to do many things we take care of almost 2000 patients and when the patients were hospitalized we have to be there we send them to the emergency room and go to the emergency room see them and then follow them in the hospital and then after their discharge write a discharge summary and all the while taking calls from our office patients and seeing patient from 9 a.m. almost until 6 p.m. and then taking care of their prescriptions making calls back many times i went home only about 8 or 9 p.m. so what was a significant uh, or memorable case that you worked on during this time period okay well i was an intern now you're talking about a period of time in uh, newport hospital rhode island when i had only a few months of experience taking care of patients that to this time we were so restricted 
in complete care of patients, that every case that comes through us, we have to speak to an attending physician who is superior to us before we could take any action whatsoever. One night, one night I was on call in the intensive care unit. The, one of the patients stopped breathing. Of course, I had no idea what to do for this patient. But the nurse came in and brought before me uh, a laryngoscope and a tube to put inside the patient's throat. I knew what it was meant to be. I had no idea how to do it. But having been a good student of human anatomy, I had knowledge of what to look for in this patient's throat. The patient, of course, was completely unconscious. His breathing had stopped. His heart is about to stop. So I took the laryngoscope in my hand, stood uh, at the head side of the patient, and put the tube inside his throat. And I could see the anatomy, which I knew very well, in his throat. The laryngeal cavity was widely open, which is usually closed. And then I immediately retracted the tongue upward and put in a lubricated trachea, uh, tracheal tube down his throat. And then she immediately advised me how to fill in the air in the side tubing so the tube does not spill, uh, come out and connected the tubing to uh, artificial uh, respirator. I thought I was just doing my usual job, but next morning when the physician taking care of the patient came in, he had huge praises for me because he told the patient that here is a physician who saved your life if not for him, you would have died. I didn't know that part until he explained it to me. Uh, then there was a second case, which is also very interesting, because in this case, the patient was an 18-year-old young woman who had a renal failure. In renal failure, one of the modes of death is by high potassium levels in the blood which causes the heart rhythm to go haywire. This woman was in fact in a rhythm called ventricular tachycardia, where the ventricular muscle goes very, very fast, but it does not do the action it's supposed to do, that is pump the heart into the rest of the part of the body, including the brain. So the blood pressure was almost near zero. They had tried the usual stuff. They had done a cardiac massage. They had done uh, ventricular uh, defibrillation of the heart, nothing was working. At that time, they were starting giving a medication for her by the name of lidocaine. It was started at 50 milligram, then 100 milligram. Then I, I remembered something that while I was a medical student in Mumbai, uh, just the year before, one of my attending physician had given a very high dose of a medication to a dying patient. And when I asked him uh, why such a big dose, he explained with a smile that dose is for living people. This is almost a dead person. Then I ordered 250 milligrams of lidocaine, which is really a huge dose, uh, and the patient responded. The heart rhythm was restored to normal, and the patient survived and was soon transferred to the Providence hospital for a renal transplant, which she survived. And uh, later on, when I visited Newport Hospital again in six months or so, 
uh, she was doing very well. To close up this Mila mini episode, we'll just ask you, how many years did you practice medicine altogether? And uh, what are your feelings in retrospect towards your career? I started in 1973, uh, July 1st, and ended in February of 2008. So talking about uh, almost 35 years of practice, uh, I found uh, my medical career very uh, rewarding. At this time, I do have my own personal medical care with physicians in Staten Island. When I go there, uh, occasionally I see a former patient of mine who, who recognizes me and uh, still thankful to me uh, for taking care of him so many years ago. So I look back with a great pride uh, in my uh, career. Thank you. You've just finished listening to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. You can follow me on Facebook at VJR Nathan Poet or on Twitter at Truth to Power Show. Tweet at me or if you'd like to be a guest on uh, Truth to Power Show, please write to Truth to Power Show at gmail.com. If you'd like to sponsor this show, please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash Truth to Power. You can also donate to Radio Free Brooklyn by going to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash donate. There are many uh, options for rewards for the Patreon method. Um, there's a link on the website, and this definitely helps support community radio sh- programs. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. Today we'll feature a song by Finn and his Rust Kickers, which is a earth-shattering rock, punk, shrunk, country, ska, noise band featuring members of erratic sculpture, Pig Earth, the Black River Republic, and the Skells. So please enjoy uh, this song, which is called... Um, the revolution starts now. I encourage you to follow them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ben and his rust kickers.